3: Hello from the children of planet Earth.
1: All engines are started.
3: That looks really good.
1: So We'd like it to stir up your cryo tank. Oh,
2: wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices.
3: Station, this is Houston. Are you
0: ready for the event?
3: Yes, I'm all set, yeah.
0: Hello, welcome to Space Boffins In partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham.
2: And I'm Sue Nelson. And this month, we're celebrating 40 years of the Voyager missions. We'll also be talking about Cassini's final weeks around Saturn. And Richard's new favourite astronaut talks about becoming an extraterrestrial
3: human. Uh, having two sets of hands would be really useful in space when you can hold on a microgravity to the sides, to handrails, and use the other hands to work. <laughs>
2: well, I'm not sure I've More of that later. That. Yes. Mm. Well, we're joined by Carl Murray, who's a professor of astronomy at Queen Mary University of London, and he's a member of the Cassini Imaging team, it's fantastic to have you uh, with us, Carl. Cassini's uh, into its grand finale, as they keep calling it, and in September the spacecraft will crash into Saturn, the, the planet it's been studying as well as its its rings and its moons since 2004. So these final weeks how, how have they been for you quite emotional I would imagine I s-
1: yes I still can't believe it's actually going to happen because we just it just come to rely on Cassini as doing its job we we plan the observations the observations come back just can't believe it's going to end
2: and what's been happening in in the final few weeks because actually for, for many observers like ourselves it, it's producing some unbelievable images so it feels like it's it's still going it, it's not going to end. <laughs>
1: yeah, they, they've produced some incredible sequences where they, uh, as they come in for the, the closest approach, they start imaging over the North Pole, where this, the hexagon is, the storm systems, and then they come right down over, over the equator. Um, so those have been spectacular. There have been a few of those. But actually, um, I think so far we've had six orbits that are dedicated to radio science, where we're... Essentially, just tracking the spacecraft, and this is to get information on the essentially the mass of the rings by looking for very small deviations in the orbit of the spacecraft. We can actually work out the mass of the rings, and that's that's going to be a key observation.
0: Well, sorry, the the mass of the rings. So, how how much material there's there?
1: Yeah, that's it. Because we we can obviously see the rings, right? But we've we've never actually um, seen an individual ring particle, and we've never actually you know. Um, Analyzed one apart from sort of impacts and so on, and we've not grabbed one. So the question is, how do you work out how do you work out the mass? And the answer is, well, the mass will affect everything around it, including the spacecraft. So if you track the spacecraft extremely accurately, which you can, if you're just pointing the spacecraft at the Earth and just measuring the signal and looking for small shifts. Uh, then you can work out the mass. And you can only do that from these kind of orbits where you're inside the rings, as it were, rather than outside. Because if you're far enough away, the rings sort of just get lumped in with uh, with the planet and you can't distinguish the, the two signals, if you like. But that close in, you can.
2: Now, when the um, data comes back for you to put together as an image, how long does that take you?
1: I mean, there's the light travel time, obviously, from the spacecraft. But once you, you see the image, you can actually just react straight away to what you see um, but sometimes you will need to extract information that's almost impossible to see. You could be looking for very faint rings. Uh, you could be looking for a structure that you know might be in in one of the rings that you can't really see until you process the image. So we do a lot of what we call reprojection. So you take the image and you uh, a- analyze it on the computer by reprojecting it as if you're looking directly above. So, um, so going from left to right, you'd be looking in longitude, and up and down would be radius. And then you can compress the image sort of in, in longitude, so to emphasize any kind of bumps and things in, in, in the rings. And,
2: and there that- are bumps, aren't there? Because I've seen images where they look as though there are, are missing little chunks um, coming out of them.
1: Oh, yes. Um, I mean, one of the rings I've been studying is, is the F ring, and it, it is just bizarre. I mean, a lot of the time, especially as it turns out when we look at it close up, it looks perfectly normal, little um, ring and then every so often you just see um, bits missing you see it just fade away you see um, linear features coming out of it, you see objects that have obviously collided with it um, all sorts of strange things So they're things.
2: constantly shifting and changing, are they?
1: Yes, certain rings um, other rings are just pretty normal and and obeying laws like uh, the ones that we understand but um, other rings like the F ring in particular, because of its location, has, there's a lot going on there. There's material trying to form. There's material, material that's already formed and is now colliding with the ring. There's material and um, objects being broken up. Um, and all of this is going on and somehow the ring still maintains some sort of structure and carries on. And that's what we're still trying to understand. We're still getting observations of that ring, in fact.
2: You, you get a lot of help from citizen scientists. In fact, I, I know a, a couple of them that, that I've been that I met on a, a NASA social, the, uh, the Orion launch, um, Jason Major and Sophia NASA. She's a dark matter scientist. And they've been using the data and, and, and processing them themselves and coming up with the most amazing images. So, I, I mean, I was quite surprised when it first came out because it's all publicly, most of it's publicly available for them, for citizen scientists to work on it.
1: Yes, the, the project decided early on that all the images, I mean, different different instruments or or different policies. But all the images, because of their appeal to the public, would be made available almost as soon as we get them. In fact, I personally go to what's called the Raw Image website, which is a public site at JPL, and uh, to see what's in every morning rather than go through the official routes and see the actual (laughs) processed images. But there's a caveat. First of all is that those images are JPEGs, um, so they're they're slightly degraded. They're about 70% quality. So, for example, if you're looking for faint rings, which we frequently are, that's the sort of thing that gets homogenised and sort of pixelated when it comes out. And so they're not, they're, those sort of images aren't much good for that. But I'm amazed by some of the work that's been done producing these uh, mosaics of um, uh, observations of the planet and, and the rings. Are just and the, just and the
2: hexagon at the North Pole as well. Some of the images uh, of ab- that have been ab- stunning.
1: Ab- absolutely. and. I remember when I when I found this object, um, Peggy, at the edge of the A-ring, um, it was back in 2013, I was aware, you could just look at the image and see it, and it was a year before the paper was, was published about it, and we kind of made things public. And I was aware that at any stage, any of these really gifted amateurs could be, citizen scientists could be, could just look at it and say, ah, I've just found something, unaware um, of what we'd done.
0: So just locate the rings for us. So the one you're particularly interested in is the F ring. Where's that? So where's the A? Where is the F?
1: OK, so if you, you know, look at Saturn through a telescope, you see the main rings. So outwards from the planet, there's the D uh, ring, the C ring, the B ring, where most, most of the mass is. In the A ring. So that's what you'd see. you think
2: um, you'd go the other way around, wouldn't you? You'd start from A from the surface and work, work uh, your way outward don't, don't get me started. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: so, so it is the order of discoveries, sort of more or less. Um so then beyond the the main rings is the F ring, which was found by Pioneer Eleven, which is this braided twisted ring. So that's about uh three hundred um three thousand kilometers beyond the edge of the A ring. So very difficult to see most of the time, not really visible from the earth but 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 from spacecraft you can see it, and then beyond that there's the the g ring, then a very different ring, the e ring, which has been created by Enceladus, you know, which has this liquid ocean underneath its surface and is spewing out these ice particles so um and there's we've also found that. All the little little satellites, some of which we knew about, some of which we didn't, have associated rings, which is almost certainly debris that's been created by impacts, creating material that kind of is um, enough velocity to escape the the moon that it's that is, it's come from, but not enough to escape the planet, so it just forms a ring um, in the orbit of the moon. We find lots of those.
2: It's it's such a uh, you can picture it, can't you? Rings around the moons around the. Saturn and by its rings I mean it's
1: it's 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 amazing it's we're it's fair to say we're still learning things you know with with every image that comes
2: back I'm assuming that you know as a result of this mission this is the most detailed knowledge we've ever had of Saturn and Uh, it's uh, its rings as a result of this mission
1: absolutely because what we're getting is uh, not only obviously seeing all these things some of which we've seen for the first time but we're studying things in detail and more importantly, studying how they change, because we've been in orbit for 13 years now. So, And, and Saturn has seasons just, just like the Earth and uh, the various phenomena in the rings, which, which change with, with, with time. Mm. And we we can observe those.
2: Now it's a joint mission. Um, the, 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 there seems to be the main focus at the moment. Seems to be NASA, 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 because the Cassini spacecraft itself is the NASA side of the mission. Um, it almost feels as though people are forgetting that Huygens, its lander, was was Europe. It was the the European part of this mission. Well, it, which landed on Titan.
1: Yeah, it was it was. Um, it's a joint mission actually between NASA and ESA and ASI, the Italian Space Agency. Sorry, but yep, yep. Yeah, I mustn't forget, because they yep. provided the antenna and, and so on. Obviously, absolute key um, instrument at the moment. Uh, but the the point was ESA scientists could participate in the NASA side, the Cassini orbiter, which is why I'm involved. And likewise, NASA scientists could contribute in, in Huygens. So the imager, the descent imager on Huygens, was a. Was led by NASA scientists. So it's a, w- a
2: wonderfully fruitful collaboration a- across absolute, the, the a Atlantic.
1: Absolutely wonderful example of, of um, international cooperation.
2: And why smash into uh, Saturn? I, I must admit, I'm not the only one who sort of wonders, you know, you s- spend all this time putting spacecraft in clean room and keeping it clean and worrying about how you're going to affect and wanting to collect pristine samples of this if you're landing on Mars, for example, and then you just kind of <laughs> smash something well, into the planet. It, it does sometimes seem counterintuitive.
1: It, does but you have got to remember the operating temperature inside the spacecraft is sort of room temperature, and if there was some mistake in the in the clean room and there was some microbes, the last place you want to uh, them to arrive is in Enceladus or on Titan, you know, which have the potential for, for for life, and so you need to dispose of the spacecraft properly. And, and Saturn
2: is after all a big gassy ig- exactly. Planet, so and, what and temperature is this? the the surface you you know when it's going to break up how far in it gets before it it disintegrates
1: it's not going to get very far I mean uh, we kind of know what the sequence is going to be first of all we're going to lose the signal because the spacecraft will be buffeted by the 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 atmosphere the upper atmosphere so once the signal is lost we have no more information coming back but then um, very soon after that everything will start to just break apart and, and, and then burn up in the atmosphere I mean, if you could actually see it from another spacecraft, it would be pretty spectacular. But
2: um, yeah, we missed we missed that opportunity then, didn't we?
1: We did, Mr. The Trickler.
0: <laughs> um, now you brought some show and tell in. This is fabulous. Describe <laughs> what you've got
1: here. I've got a small cardboard box which contains. Uh, I think it's an it's an eau de toilette, and it's called Cassini Pour Homme. Have you um, used it? Um, my wife said, if I use this again, she... Um, uh,
2: was it like sex pamper <laughs> or something? <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. Um, <laughs> where, where did you get that from? Was that okay, part well, of a, a the, kit or it, is it just there is an aftershave called Cassini?
1: There is an aftershave, a whole sort of range called Cassini, and there's it's not a sort of marketing ploy by NASA, I think. Yeah. What I loved it was the, the advertising that was around at the time, which you used to find, you know, those full-page Sunday supplement ads, um, was kind of prophetic because their slogan was... Um, Cassini, a love affair that never ends. Could, <laughs> Except it is going to end. <laughs> <in 50 laughs> it
2: could have been worse. It could have been a ply around your ring. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Susan! So <dear. laughs> Sorry. It was the obvious joke. Oh, dear. Can we to move on to the other though,
0: Cassini yeah. uh, souvenir here? Okay. Now, you'll have to exp- this is a little bit... Well, it's not complicated,
1: but this is a mug. It's a mug. Now, you would expect a sort of NASA official Cassini mug to be... Um, you know lots of pictures of the planet and such mugs do exist but this is this is a mug that was uh, um, it, it filled a need because um, after the, the spacecraft was launched and before we, we got to Saturn we spent a lot of time um, deciding amongst ourselves in other words the various instrument teams what we were going to look at at various times and because everything is body mounted to the spacecraft um, we have a whole coordinate system. So if you've done your your maths at school. You know about sort of x, y, and z, and they're all perpendicular to each other. So you hold um, your thumb, your yeah, finger, your exactly. forefinger,
2: and your middle finger out. To, to
1: exactly. Try and get it. So so for example, I know that imaging points in the minus y direction, um, but radar, I think, points in the plus z. So, so basically,
0: you, you can't use the two at the same
1: time. Exactly, because they're 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 orthogonal. Now, I also know, for example, that um, a key instrument at the Saturn orbit insertion back in two thousand and four was the uh, the magnetometer. And they had a, like a little cone um, that was, it was basically in, I think, plus X, but with a sort of 45 degree cone. So they needed to get the magnetic field lines entering their cone, um, but we needed to get the best ever view of the rings. So we wanted obviously minus Y straight down at the rings, but if minus Y is straight down at the rings... Plus X is parallel to to the rings, so, this, and then let's it, it does get, get yeah, exactly. the point. Anyway, this, this this design, which kind of looks like all sort of abstract um, um, images on it, is just is to tell mission planners. Um, where all the instruments are in X, Y, and Z. So they're all kind of written on to well, the, to we'll the mug. A,
2: we'll put a photo I assume we're sure. allowed to take a photo of it. And we, we'll put it up on our Facebook. And I'm sure we know that there will be listeners who will know exactly
1: I bet there are what, the,
2: <laughs> what to do with it. What we had to do,
1: we had these endless telecons deciding all these observations. And the people who got their observations were the ones that essentially could think in the three dimensions. And I saw people construct polystyrene, cups with pencils thrown sort of stuck in it you know like sort of acupuncture stuck in at various angles and 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 so on because they if you could sort of visualize you know what the spacecraft was doing so so just because one axis was pointing one direction didn't mean you couldn't do your observation if you could get an orientation so imaging let's say minus y was pointing what you wanted to look at so this was the whole idea and you got the best use of the resources and so
2: was this a sort of custom made mug particularly for the team members
1: um Oh, gosh, I think it wasn't it was, on it was,
2: shelves in.
1: Uh, no, no, it, it's not it's on of shelves in Walmart. <laughs> no. Or something. Yeah. No, I, I think you could only buy them in the JPL shop. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I managed to get a stash brought, brought over by by a friend at JPL once. And I've been very careful to I've, I've given them to. That's my last oh. unused one. Oh, honoured so well, cr- that you brought right. it. I mean, in, it's not like... spectacular, but um, and it also has a little joke on it.
0: Maybe I should. Yeah, tell us the, <laughs> the
1: joke. Well,
2: there's... This will be a scientist idea. Yeah, joke, this though, is, yeah so, yes, I, I apologise
1: <laughs> So obviously the, the main axis, I should point out, would be sort of the Z, which would be the vertical axis. And so there's a sort of essentially a health warning on it, which says, do not rotate cup minus Z to Earth unless empty. Scientists joke. about it, yes. Uh, yes. All <laughs> uh,
0: right, we're going to head back 40 years now. Jimmy Carter was U.S. President, Space Shuttle Enterprise, flew freely in the atmosphere for the first time, and two spacecraft blasted off from Cape Canaveral. Five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition
1: and we have liftoff. We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into
0: the solar system than ever before. Reports coming back indicate those twin large solid motors are functioning perfectly, producing 1.2 million pounds of thrust each. The launch of Voyager 2 on 20th of August 1977. It was followed on the 5th of September by Voyager 1. Incredibly, they are still working. Right now, Voyager 1 is 12 billion miles away. Voyager 2 is a mere 10.5 billion miles away. And they send back data to Earth using, get this, a 20-watt transmitter. And it takes 38 hours for a signal to travel to Voyager 1 And back. Well, between them, the Voyager missions have explored Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They've discovered volcanic moons, gasoline-shrouded worlds, and even geysers on a moon of Neptune. Well, here's legendary Voyager project scientist Ed Stone.
1: Before Voyager, the only known active volcanoes were here on Earth. Then we flew past Io, a moon of Jupiter about the size of our moon, ten times the volcanic activity of Earth. The terra-centric view that Earth somehow was special, suddenly it turned out here was a little moon that had 10 times more volcanic activity. Another example is before Voyager, the only known liquid water ocean here on Earth. Go to fly by, and here's a moon of Jupiter called Europa, which has an ice crust, cracked, just like ice pack on a liquid water ocean, which, in fact, the Galileo mission subsequently said, yes, there is a liquid water ocean beneath this surface. Well,
0: in 1990, Voyager 2 turned its camera back towards the Earth to take the pale blue dot image, which shows Earth just a single pixel in the vastness of space. In 2013, Voyager 1 left the solar system behind, and NASA converted that data into sound. Voyager 1 is now in the space between the stars. Well, the other aspect of this mission that makes it so unique is, of course, the Golden Record project with sound, speech, music and pictures from Earth, which is attached to the sides of both spacecraft. finally got a train into space boffins. Well, I have spent the last few months putting together a radio documentary on Voyager, which will go out on uh, BBC World Service later this month, presented by astronaut Ron Garan, who you've heard several times before, I think, on space boffins. And we'll keep you posted on our Twitter and Facebook pages, of course. Also on Instagram. We're on Instagram now. Um, But Carl, you're in the documentary. Um, oh. You're in the documentary. <laughs> <It> don't <laughs> sound surprised. surprised. You are. Yeah, you it. did you, know you, that. Yeah. You, okay. I was there. Um, i the um, right. um, will come to why you were in that in a minute. But you, you kind of got started on, on that mission, didn't you? On the Voyager mission.
1: Yeah, I was. I was never officially involved, but as, as a scientist, I, I started my PhD in 1977. Obviously, the, the year of the launch, and um, as the as my kind of career progressed, this the, the, the mission progressed. So I remember. One of the PhD subjects I kind of investigated was, you know, is it possible that Jupiter has rings? You know, and of course Voyager showed us that Jupiter does have rings, and I was studying the dynamics of those. So by by 1980, I'd, I'd moved to, to postdoc at Cornell, where of course several of the Voyager imaging team members were based, including Carl Sagan, and Joe Verka, Peter Gearash, and so on. And um, I was never I was never kind of high enough up the chain to to get to, to JPL. But I was on the sidelines for the, for the Saturn encounters, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And then later, by 1986, I was back at, at, at Queen Mary, um, but I was busy lecturing, so I didn't get a chance to go to the, to the Voyager Uranus encounter. Um, but by 1989, August, summer holidays, um, I tried to get to, to, to the Neptune encounter. But my whole career, I mean, obviously I ended up working a lot on, on Saturn, but that was kind of inspired by the discoveries that, that Voyager made.
0: And uh, it's quite interesting how you got to the um, the Voyager encounters. You got you you, you went in as a, as a um, journalist. You got a press pack, I, <laughs> I, I, and um, you brought it with yeah, you. I I sort of it's, incredible. Incredible.
1: it's a bit tatty looking, but this is actually what they give to to the uh, the scientists, uh, well, well, actually the the press. Um, <laughs> the scientists didn't get anything like this. Um, so
0: this is the, the Neptune encounter, so the final encounter. Exactly. So and the- here's a
2: big press, big green and black press. Put this in your windshield when you park yeah. on Oak Grove Drive. Because
1: the, the parking lot, the visitor lot at JPL was so full. They allowed people to park all the way down Oak Grove Drive, which is where you come off the, the freeway. Oh, look at JPL. that
2: lovely old NASA logo, the, old, the, the, worm. Old worm. the worm logo. Oh, oh, we love the worm logo,
1: that's the, yeah. All, that's all changed as well. Yes, I, I um, uh, Philip Campbell, who was editor of Physics World at the time, um, I, I put a term that if he got me a sort of press badge um, – I would write, I rashly said I would write articles and he actually held me to that and made me sort of file copy via fax, you know, remember faxes? Oh, yeah. Um, so I was busy in my hotel room when I wasn't attending the press conference or writing about, you know, sort of thermal output of, 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 um, of, of, of Neptune and so
0: on. Uh, and what's interesting actually about that Neptune encounter, that was, I mean, one of the last pictures was of, was of Triton. Um, which turned out to be one of the most incredible discoveries for the whole mission, the whole exactly. Voyager 2 mission.
1: And I'm, uh, I'm, for an astronomer, I'm not very good at staying up late. That's <laughs> why I don't really do much observing. I'm much more a theoretician. Um, but that's one of the few times I've actually stayed up all night in the JPL cafeteria, as it turned out, uh, to to see those first images come back and say, you know, I was one of the first people to, to see to see those images.
0: So what, what was it? What, what did they discover on Triton?
1: Um, well, they discovered, you would sort of think, well, we're, we're kind of used to it now with the sort of Pluto New Horizons images, but you sort of think anything that far out in the solar system has to be pretty dead. Yeah, it's so going to be pretty thought, boring, isn't it? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they, um, as always with, with Voyager, they were looking for sort of words to describe like the terrain they were seeing. So they found what they call this cantaloupe terrain, you know, so there's sort of these little sort of bubbles on the on the surface. But then, of course, the amazing discovery was of these these, these plumes, um, sort of sort of cryovolcanism, of some sort. And and I just remember seeing them; they sort of went vertically upwards, and then they just went horizontal. And this was obviously because they'd reached some sort of layer in the very tenuous atmosphere where they could then then then, then be affected by these winds, you know, winds on a on the surface of of, of Triton. It was just just incredible, and you could see these dark streaks as well, which they realised was the kind of material coming back to. To the, to the surface of, of Triton um, and this material coming from underneath. Absolutely amazing.
0: Is it frustrating to you that we've not gone back? To, to Uranus and Neptune when, because a lot of these images you, uh, the reason I should say the reason you're in the uh, the documentary is, it's not because obviously you know a lot about this mission <laughs> but you actually are in charge you have the responsibility for this dusty filing cabinet which has the, the original hard you're copy image archives but is it not uh, frustrating that you've got these, just these images from Voyager which are great but that's all we've got we've got nothing, nothing else we've not been back we're not going back
1: well, yeah, but the thing was, that was our first look. That was such a unique mission. And, uh, you know, I remember when it was in the planning stages and we didn't really know whether it was going to go beyond Saturn and so on. And so when it got to Uranus and Neptune then we basically ticked the boxes for the outer solar system with, the, of course, the exception of Pluto. Um, and I thought, uh, as of all these missions, these are flyby missions. So the 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 NASA strategy, which is exemplified by Cassini, is to, to go back and put a spacecraft in orbit and then study these in detail and um lots of my colleagues are still um working on proposals for for orbiters for for Uranus and Neptune or if not at least at these flyby missions because they they reveal um they sort of reveal so much and there's so many puzzles which is which is a sign of success of of, of the mission i remember i i mean i have to say though that you know, because I study rings, the rings of Uranus, we still know more about the rings of Uranus from ground-based occultations, you know, where you're measuring a sort of starlight um been uh, interrupted by by the rings the measure those measurements are so precise that we can actually know more about the rings from those ground-based measurements than, than spacecraft but that's not to say we shouldn't send a spacecraft back
0: okay let's save your final show and tell till last because i think okay. that's i think that's the best i think that's the best <laughs> one okay coming up how should humans evolve to live in space this is the space boffins podcast we're in partnership with the naked scientists
2: do follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Now, by the way, we're off to Oregon shortly for the eclipse. So if you're in Corvallis for what's billed as the great American eclipse. It's like it somehow belongs to America. Yeah, it's course kind of it happening does. anyway. Uh, of course know? it does. Uh, do get in touch with us um, and say hello. We It was great, actually. We were at a, a screening of the mission control movie The Unsung Heroes of Apollo uh, last night and it was fabulous to meet so many people in the audience who are also going to be in Oregon. Don't, don't ask me why but uh, the British are coming.
0: <laughs> now if you're following the launch of European Space Agency astronaut Paolo Nespoli to the International Space Station a couple of weeks ago hopefully you were watching it on the ESA website. Our coverage with myself and uh, European Space Agency astronaut Luca Palmetano is a little different to the way NASA does it.
3: Oh, he just sent us a kiss. So Italian. I would have done the same thing, probably should also
0: mention uh, with, that, with that image, you could see Transformer Max. Now, tran- the Transformer, <laughs> which is hanging from the uh, little string there, that'll tell. There we go. You can see it in the, the window. That's a, a Transformer. I think it's a vintage Transformer, actually. Uh, when they're in the microgravity environment, reach orbit, that
3: should drift free. So it, this, is,
0: this is... See, look, you don't get that on the NASA coverage, <laughs> Kissing and Transformers. That's me and Luca Parmitano commentating on the launch for ESA from Mission Control Moscow. And actually, I would encourage you to just watch the, uh, the videos of the, that launch and the docking because they've got new uh, cameras on the International Space Station, new HD cameras on the Space Station. And they are... I, I hesitate to use the word, but they are awesome Oh, no, no, they are. They, I mean, they are the best. They look like something out of a movie. They just and you look sound like something absolutely. out of a Lego
2: movie. Every,
0: I could sing. <laughs> no, no I won't say. sing that. <laughs> anyway, before the launch, had uh, talked about the idea of living off the Earth for months at a time and becoming an extraterrestrial human. So I took the opportunity to ask Luca about
3: what that meant. It's something that astronauts that do long duration flights all feel, because there is an adaptation that in many ways feels like a transformation. If you think about the early flights, or even the shuttle flights, they were all in the order of a few days up to a couple of weeks. Then we got into this long-duration flight, and we noticed that there is a definite change. If you go up in space for two weeks, you have just enough time to understand that your body is going through some changes, and then you're back on the ground, life is normal, great experience, Roller coaster. But when you are up in For six months or longer, you go through the phase of transformation where you see and you feel your body changing. You see your legs get skinnier and your face gets round. And then slowly, your body reacts to that and and it changes and it gets into a new state of normality. And also, your behavior changes in space. Initially, you tend to move horizontally because you're afraid of knocking into things, knocking your head around or your arms and your limbs, and you have to get used to these parts of your body that behave differently. After a few weeks, I would say about six weeks, you start getting comfortable to the point you start moving vertically again. At that point, there has been a transformation. You have adapted to space, and your body is different than what it was on the ground. And so, by all means, you are extraterrestrial.
0: Does that surprise you, given that we obviously evolved from single-celled organisms on Earth in 1G environment, that you
3: can adapt so, so readily to this alien environment? Surprise is not quite the word. It amazes me. One of the reasons why humans, the human, space, the human race, is so successful on Earth is our capability to adapt. But to see in the arc of a few weeks very, very quickly see physical changes happening and you reacting to that by adjusting to your new body. It's just amazing. It blew me away how different I felt after a few weeks of being in space, how much more comfortable, how my new body just uh, fit the environment that I was in. If you want to take that thought to the extreme, that's when you start having... Amazing ideas about the possible future of evolution.
0: Well that's what I wanted to to ask, because at the moment you work really hard to stay in shape so when you get out of your Soyuz when it crashes back into Kazakhstan, you can actually you can walk. But what if you didn't do that? I mean if what if humans start living off the earth? Do you think we will ultimately adapt to, to having a there'll be spacefaring humans?
3: Now evolution is an incredibly, incredibly slow process. I like to think in a different way. If we want to be a space-faring species, if we really think about leaving Earth and be space-bound to a different planet or uh, the different star system in a in a far future, well, we now we now have the capability to intervene on the human on the human DNA. We understand that there are genes that can be activated. We also we are looking into ways of activating these genes, now we enter into a different field, which is t- the field of ethics and morality. But if we put those things apart, because in general, th- these things change t- change in time, you know, our morality and our sense of ethics. Let's say that we decide to have a human capable of travelling through space. How would you design a human? I would try to make it as adapted as possible to space flight. So... Do I need legs? Well, they're not very useful in, in space. Now, I wouldn't chop them off, but if I have feet, why don't I turn those into hands? Uh, having two sets of hands would be really useful in space when you can hold on to a microgravity, to, to the sides, to, you know, to handrails, and use the other hands to work. A stabilizing tail would be incredibly interesting too because three points of stability is better than two. Uh, if, if we put all those things into consideration, then you could imagine of designing a DNA, a future spacefaring human, an evolution of the Homo, Homo sapiens. We'll call it something different, but to me, that's that's not shocking or surprising. It's just something that we could do, and maybe maybe we have to do.
0: Uh, the alternative is to develop what you see in, in science fiction, which is artificial gravity, is to have rotating spacecraft or as hating space stations and get away from the the microgravity environment
3: the problem with anything that is related to technology is that eventually it, it is bound to break up and you have to fix it again and this this means increased cost on increased reliability and uh, because space is such a harsh environment again when i think about a future of spaceflight and future of spacecraft I imagine a drastic change of mentality and direction if the public the listeners have seen the movie Passengers it's not really a sci-fi movie it's, not really, it's more like a love story framed as a sci-fi movie but there is a concept there that I like very much and it it's this spacecraft that, that tends to fix itself that's what biological organisms do they, you know, you you get you cut yourself, and after a couple of weeks, it, you 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 heal yourself. You, so a machine that's self healing would have to have a different technology, different approach to design than what we think now. If we were able to design something like that, then even complex environment like an artificial uh, gravity uh, rotating system would certainly be available. Now we would have taken part of the experience away uh, by building a machine that suits their life on earth but at the same time it is more interesting to think of living in an environment that is not limited to gravity because we we don't know what we're looking for out there.
0: Do you think we are at a point where we are becoming as humans a space-faring civilization when we I mean, you, you know even if it's tiny steps at the moment with Continued long-duration space flights?
3: I don't think we are at the stage yet. When we as humans went to the moon 50, almost 50 years ago now, I would compare it to the Vikings living on their boats uh, from the coast of Denmark and ending up in the northern coast of the American continent without even realizing it. They did something extraordinary, they got there, they looked around and then went back and nothing came out of it. And then, f- uh, many centuries later, in uh, 1492, we had Christopher Columbus and uh, traversing the ocean with a purpose. His purpose was exploration. He wanted to get there. He got to a place that, he, that was not what he thought, but still, from that point on, there was something that happened after that. But the really critical moment was the Mayflower. That's when the colonization started. So I think right now we are probably in that phase as Christopher Columbus. We are exploring our capabilities to get to get that flight, to get that trip going to where, where are we? Do we what resources do we need? They went there with three ships and some instrumentation that led them to San Salvador, but we right now are at the step where We need to figure out what kind of technology we need to invent, what kind of uh, resources we need to bring with us in order to go somewhere. When I say somewhere, I mean the moon and then Mars. So what I would like to see is us going from the explorer step, which is where we are now in the future, to be in the, the colonizing step. But we are definitely not there yet.
0: Luca Palmatano talking to me in Moscow and I have to say he is a joy to work with I don't have to say that I am saying that (laughs) he is a joy to work with how do we feel about the idea Carl of two sets of hands and a tail
1: for space can't quite visualize it myself. <laughs>
2: Although I was, I was sketching as he was. Oh, famous, you drawn it! And oh. Can we put that on uh, Facebook? And uh, well, I also <laughs> doodled a little grey as well, <laughs> uh, the alien with the because I was thinking. Well, people reckon that the traditional alien representation with the pointed, big head because the brains would have evolved with the large eyes on very small mouth because they contact telepath. You know, it's all those ideas of science fiction, and at the moment, mine looks like a sort of mermaid almost, with four arms, two on each each side. But I was thinking it reminded me, as I was doing it, that's like it's like an octopus. And then I was thinking of the film Arrival, where the aliens depicted in uh, that film looked like giant squid or octopus. And then shortly after I'd seen that film, I read uh, a chapter in a book that's been edited by the physicist Jim Al-Khalili called Aliens or Alien, and each chapter is written by a different scientist, be it an exobiologist or, a you know, a physicist or what have you, with their take on it. And one of those chapters was about how actually if you wanted something alien, the mo- the most alien thing you can find on Earth was probably um, from like the octopus and squid family in terms of how they behave and, and what they do in their biology. Mm. So actually what he's suggesting is perhaps... Not so far fetched. Well, the, well, the, After ocean, all, the ocean it's, environment—it's it's inter- very interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: The ocean environment is not so far removed from the from the space environment, so that would make sense. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: I remember in in Cassini we had these images of these small moons that are embedded in the satellites in the in the ring system, and when the images came back, I said we can't put these out because they look like UFOs, <laughs> essentially like flying saucers, because <laughs> yeah. you imagine sort of a sort of a near spherical sort of centre to the to the moon. But then this equatorial ridge that essentially looked that it had been manufactured, you couldn't think of anything so else. So are you
0: saying, Carl, that you covered up? <laughs> no, no, we were no, no, no,
1: no. But you're looking for words to describe it. And then some people came up with ravioli and... But the best was, it looks the like UFO, a flying UFO, saucer. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. your yeah. <laughs> does.
2: I mean, the, the genetically engineered bit is interesting because I interviewed um, someone at the European Space Agency recently who was telling me about the fact that Human bodies, our bodies have different tolerances to radiation so that some astronauts can't go up as often as others because they may have already received their maximum dose and that there could conceivably be a future. We already effectively genetically select astronauts already mm-hmm. Because you tend to go for very intelligent, smart people who are usually extremely physically fit and healthy, which most of us aren't. Uh, And um, it could be in the future that you also select for a high tolerance of radiation as well. And that's the next step from that is then genetically engineering your body. If you wanted to become an astronaut, so that you do have the height tolerance.
1: Actually, I did want to become an astronaut. Me and too. Then, yeah. then, then I saw there was a height requirement, and I was found out I was too tall. Well, so. actually,
0: really, pa- well, it's what? interesting. Paolo Nespoli is is very tall. He really struggles to fit in that. In that Soyuz what is capsule. the height? The
2: maximum height?
1: Then they tend to go for. I don't know, but I was because, when yeah. they were looking for astronauts. I it, saw it's the...
0: changed. It's got better. They've ah. Every every adaptation. I can't remember what the um, exact height is now, but every adaptation of the Soyuz capsule, which is the only way to get humans into space right now, has got bigger to accommodate Americans and Europeans.
2: But it's true when you do meet astronauts, and we've met between us, met quite a few. It's like the Tom Cruise factor. Everyone says, mm. oh, he's much shorter than you know <laughs> you know. But it is, the astronauts are, all seem to me pretty petite.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was the, the reason I got into astronomy was I mean, it was because of space and it was all the Apollo missions and. I remember building with polystyrene tiles a, a copy of the lunar the landing module uh, um, with complete with sort of a plunger for the joystick and things, and this is in my bedroom. And, but my local astronomical society showed all the Apollo films as they came out, and so um, they kept on saying, of course, you should come to our meetings, and um, that's when I got hooked on astronomy, and that combined with the fact that I thought I was too tall to be an astronaut. Now I'm too old to be an astronaut, but... <laughs> I suppose well, it's John Glenn. Actually, so yeah, well, John Glenn
0: was. Uh, Callan Espoli is 60. He looks um, good. He's in good shape. John Glenn was 77.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I'm fit enough. I think there must still be requirements for fitness. Sorry,
2: Carl, these are sounding like if I, excuses. Yeah. If I
1: grow another pair of hands, idiots. you'll be fine. Yeah. Can
0: you just tell us about your final show and tell? Because I think this is just phenomenal. It's around the size of a, a glass tube, around the size of a, a test tube, I guess. Well, I was
1: going to say, for those of you who remember valves, the old sort of valves that used to be in televisions and radios, it's like sort of elongated valve. This is um, a spare Voyager Vidicon tube, which is at the heart of every Voyager camera so there are four of these now in either interstellar space or the edge of the, of the solar system this is one of the spares from from JPL and this is what was developed as part of the imaging system um so it's essentially an analog device which are now of course used to ccds and that's what Cassini has and so on but essentially the the light was focused on this one end of, of the tube where there was a sort of photosensitive material and then the the charge would build up on this. And then that this would be kind of scanned and would uh, then be converted into a digital signal. So the actual final images were digital, but created by an analogue device.
0: So those amazing images that we get back from Voyager, which I think still ha- hold up today, came from yes. this sort of old-fashioned camera and, tube. And
1: but... we know, and they're, they're very silly. If you've ever seen raw Voyager images, which you can still find on, on various websites, they have these tiny little dots called marks, And you think, well, who put those there? And... Um, they were designed to essentially calibrate the images because the longer the exposure, the more distorted the final image got. So even though all the images were 800 by 800 pixels when they came back, um, you could tell by the position of these little dots, which had been etched onto the viticon tube, where, the, where they should have been. And so what you do is you do a transformation on the computer to get that back so they're in the correct positions. And that produces um, this incredible distortion in, in the image. Um, but they were the curse anybody's ever had to deal with Voyager images. They were impossible because they were they were different for each encounter because of how the the environment had changed and 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 so on. Um, but it's it's I have this on my on my shelf in my office and this is just a reminder that there's one of these um, out there. We've actually there's another connection with Cassini that the optical assembly on on the Cassini's wide angle camera is a Voyager spare optical so there's one that was built for the forager project because good optics are good optics and uh, that doesn't change of course it's got a ccd at the other end instead of a viticon tube but apart from that same assembly
0: that is a great space souvenir yeah, absolutely we'll, brilliant
2: uh, we'll put a picture of that as well uh, up on our uh, facebook page and various uh, Social media accounts. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Carl Murray from Queen Mary University of London for for joining us. And uh, we'll be thinking of you and uh, Andrew Coates as well, who's a a long time friend of us and Space Boffins from Mullard Space Laboratory when uh, we see Cassini finally disappear and, and end its mission. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Uh, do follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram so we can update you on that Voyager programme. Uh, we've also got some other BBC programmes in the pipeline on Cassini and the uh, glorious Wally Funk we'll be making a return to.
0: We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and if we don't see you at the eclipse in Oregon we'll be back here in September. Now, we've just had the 48th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And we're all, I think, overly familiar with the uh, one giant leap phrase. Uh, What we rarely get to hear, though, is the launch back from the moon after Buzz Aldrin had improvised a switch using a pen. So we'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening. Six,
1: five, stage, engine arm,
2: proceed. Six thirty-six feet per second up. Five for the pitch over. Uh Very smooth. Balance couple off.
0: Very quiet ride. There's that one crater on there.